The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. So welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you again to Caleb and Hapal uh, for joining us for another conversation. And this week, we are going to be talking about the Chinese Revolution. Uh, obviously, it's a huge topic, but we'll do our best to do some justice to us to it in the time allowed. Uh, and I'm going to start by asking Hopal a little bit about the background to the Chinese Revolution, because obviously, you know, as Marxists, we can say, you know, the whole system is ripe for overthrow. And yet, in many countries, it lingers on and on and on, despite the fact you would think that all of the forces were ready and ripe for its removal. So the first question really is, why was there a revolution in China? Well, the best way to look at it is to see that, that the modern history of China, as indeed the beginning of the Chinese Revolution, comes with the Opium Wars. And the first Opium War was between, uh, between 1839 and 1842. It's a war that ceded Hong Kong to Britain, with Britain Jews for a long time as a center for running drugs. Um, forcing opiates on, on the Chinese people. It ended with a humiliating treaty, um, which was signed by the Chinese, which subjugated the Chinese people and the Chinese state to the whims first of British imperialism, and then to a subsequent, uh, subsequently to a number of other imperialist powers. This was followed by a second opium war in the mid, mid, mid 50s, which also resulted in further concessions being made by the Chinese. And because the, the Tang dynasty, no, sorry, Qing dynasty was totally rotten and impotent and unable to defend China, it frustrated the Chinese people. They were very angry. So one after the other, a number of revolutionary movements started in China. The first one was the Taiping uh, re rebellion, which lasted for but uh, something like 12 years from 1850 to 1864, 14 years. It spread over a vast territory of China. It was one of the largest anti-colonial uh, movements of, of, of that time. And the person who led it was a Christian. He believed that he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ, and he wanted to overthrow the corrupt King dynasty and established a kingdom of heavenly, heavenly peace, peace in China. And it frightened the daylight out of colonialist powers as well as the Qing dynasty. And eventually both of them combined together to crush, to crush this movement. Then it was followed subsequently by the, the, the Boxer Rebellion. It's called Boxer because the, the society that initiated it used spirituality as well as physical exercises and so in the western countries they, they came to be known known as as boxers it lasted a couple of years from 1899 to 1901 that too was crushed and then we enter the tw the 20th century and that uh, there's a significant landmark and that's called may the fourth movement this is in the aftermath of the first world war and the Treaty of Versailles handed over the territories conquered by German imperialism from China, not back to the Chinese people, who were after all on the winning side, but handed them over to the Japanese. It caused outrage and tremendous amount of um, discussions took place among various sections of society. And particularly the students were very active and they organized huge demonstra demonstrations. That too was crushed. One after the other, these movements, whatever their form, they were anti-colonialist and they were democratic movements. Whether they were religious or non-religious, whether they were anti-foreigner overtly or not, the Boxer Rebellion was definitely overtly anti-foreigner. They burned churches, they attacked priests, they attacked foreign uh, di 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 diplomats, and they were angry that China was being being subjugated. But one one after the other, 
they were they were crushed. But their essence was they were democratic movements, and the Chinese Communist Party has always recognized them to be democratic movements and not some obscure interest stuff just because they followed uh, Christianity or um, they were anti-foreign, um, whatever the case 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 may be. And Chinese, of course, initially wanted to learn from the West. The Chinese intellectuals launched movements against Confucian culture, saying it was subjugating the Chinese people. It was mentally and intellectually make, making them shackled, and they wanted to learn from the West. They wanted to learn science. They wanted to learn politics, everything from the West. But they could learn nothing from the West, because as Mao Zedong said, they soon found out that the teacher they wanted to learn from was always beating them up. So that was no way of learning. And eventually, the only way they could learn was when the, like, like a bolt from the blue, the October Revolution of 1917 in Russia took place. And it changed the whole world and changed the outlook of Chinese in, in, intellect, intellectuals as well. As Mao Zedong says, the solvers of the October Revolution brought socialism, socialism to China. He said, before the October Revolution, we Chinese had not only not heard of Lenin and Stalin, we'd never heard of Marx and Engels. We knew nothing about Marx and Engels, but the Russian Revolution brought this to us. And it did a number of things, which, which their alleged teachers from the West could never do. It gave up all its treaty rights in China, something unheard of at the time in any part of the world. And that electrified the Chinese people. And they all said, let's learn from the Russians. Russia then and the October Revolution became a model for the Chinese Revolution. So that really is the background to, 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 to this. And of course, soon after the October Revolution, four years after that, the Chinese Communist Party is established in 19... 21. And the liberation of China is indelibly connected with the founding, development, and activities of the Communist Party of China in leading the Chinese people through a very complicated struggle over a period of nearly three decades le 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 leading up to, up, up, to, up, to re up to revolution. And of course, at that time, there was a Democratic Party, People's Revolutionary Party, that's Kuomintang in, 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 in Chinese, led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen, a very noble, sincere de Democrat. And of course, he led the anti-warlord struggle and was able to establish in 1911 the Chinese Republic, which overthrew the, mon the monarchy. But of course, Sun Yat-sen had no finances, he had no great army, and he could not impose the rule of the Republic on vast sections of society. And he was persuaded by warlords, especially by Yuan Shikai, to hand over the power to him. And because he said he would persuade the, the emperor to abdicate and establish a republic. He did nothing of the kind. In fact, having got that promise, having become the president, he soon converted himself to being a monarchist. He became the emperor, emperor, emperor himself. And that's precisely uh, what happened. Of course, the we can perhaps talk about it in a moment. In the initial stages, in 1914, the Communist Party of China joined the KMT joined the Kuomintang because it was a revolutionary democratic society which was leaving, leading the pe 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 people forward. And we come to that when you ask me the next question. Let's hope so. Caleb, did you want to add something to that before we move on? Sure. Well, there's a lot there. Um, what I think is also, you know, you talk about both the Boxer Rebellion and the Taping Uprising. Uh, the Taping Uprising, it, you know, it, it's a similar thing we see in, in different parts of Asia where where Christianity as a foreign religion brought by the West becomes a vehicle for peasant uprising. And you see that in Japan, 
in the Shimbara uprising in Japan uh, that, that went on. Uh, that was very big in the struggle against feudalism, was brutally crushed. Uh, in Korea, there were many uh, similar movements where it seems like the peasantry fighting for their liberation, they attached something in attached to something in Christianity. Obviously, this wasn't doctrinaire Christianity. This this individual who claimed to be Jesus's younger brother, I'm sure that considered heresy. Uh, but uh, but it it was it was a vehicle, and it kind of fits. You know, you you talk about the peasant wars in Germany uh, and Thomas Munzer, and how you know there were even in Europe of uh, uh, kind of radical Christian ideas being used by peasants in their struggle with feudalism. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the Boxer Rebellion. Um, it's interesting because the U.S. military was sent to China to put down the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, I believe uh, that was the first U.S. military intervention in China uh, at that point. And um, the justification uh, in U.S. media for sending the troops to fight the Boxer Rebellion was the anti anti-Christian activities of the boxers, right? That they saw Christianity as a Western religion that was was not Chinese. So they were they were targeting Christian missionaries. And so the American public was told, oh my God, the, the brutal, evil Chinese are killing Christian missionaries. When in reality, the US Marines weren't being sent to protect Christians and missionaries, they were being sent to protect drug dealers. Uh, because the main one of the main things the boxers were going around doing was was burning uh, the opium stashes, uh, confiscating opium pipes, executing drug dealers. And so this is one example of the U.S. military being sent to China to protect the uh, the opium trade and the drug gangs, um, and uh, and that's kind of what was going on there. And um, that's you know people point to that intervention. I believe U.S. Uh, Marine Corps General Smedley Butler came out and talked about how you know he had been sent to to China to protect the drug dealers. Um, so I think that's that's worth pointing out there. And um, uh, you know I mean, what was said about modernization. I think that's also very important. Uh, because again, you know, I mean, kind of what, what Harpal said about, about how China is, was struggling to become modern. And I think in a lot of the, the new left narratives we get about imperialism, imperialism is about culture, right? It, it's like, they're not, they, they make it sound like, you know, the problem with, with the West is the West is bringing science and it's bringing this modern technology to these beautiful primitive peoples and, and taking them. And that's not the essence of it at all. China wanted to modernize. It wanted to raise its people up out of poverty. And it was the imperialists that were preventing that, um, that were preventing science, that were holding in place the feudal and patriarchal relations, uh, you know, you know, keeping China in a state of primitivism and uh, preventing its ability to develop. And uh, and uh, that's also very important to point out. So that, those are my comments on, on what Harpal just said. Great. Thanks, Caleb. I mean, you know, this whole uh, protection by Western militaries of um, drug dealers around the world is a recurring theme, isn't it? And most recently uh, illustrated in Afghanistan, where I think a large proportion of the military effort there was uh, in protecting uh, the drug trade. Uh, Hapal, um, you talked a little bit there about how the October Revolution changed the mindset of revolution. There were already people with revolutionary sentiments in China, but their orientation was altered forever by the arrival of the October Revolution of socialism in the world their exposure to Marxism. I mean, I've been to the museum, which is a, you know, the little house in which lived the comrade, I've forgotten his name, apologies, Chinese people, uh, who, who made the first translation of the Communist Manifesto into Chinese, you know, which was a earth shattering event in China that suddenly they could read Marxism in Chinese and start to be exposed to these, you know, earth shaking ideas. Um, so, you know, there was established a Communist Party in 1921 in China. We just celebrated its centenary last year. Um, but they weren't, as you said, you know, the movers and shakers of the revolutionary movement at that moment in time. Although significant and important figures in the revolutionary movement converted to socialism at that point, there was a much bigger force, which was the Kuomintang. So who was it who, who was organizing the forces for the revolution and how? And what was the role of the communists, Rapal? Well, the communists joined Kuomintang, um, and at that time, Kuomintang was led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Dr. Sun Yat-sen had three very important principles, which he emphasized. One, alliance with the Soviet Union. Two, alliance with the Communist Party. And thirdly, helping the workers and peasants. So this was a program, democratic pro program, to which the Chinese communists could possibly have no, no objection. So they joined the Kuomintang and 
uh, there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, gains that were achieved during during, during that pe period, and it was particularly important at that time when the Comintern was led by somebody like uh, and, and Dr. Sunit Sen, and just one day before he died, he wrote a letter to the leadership of the Soviet Union, which is a very moving letter. And if you will allow me one minute, I'd like to read that letter. He said, while I lie here in a melody against which men are powerless, my thoughts are towards, turned towards you and towards the fate of my party and my country. You are at the head of the Union of Free Republics, that heri heritage left to the oppressed pe peoples of the world by the immortal Lenin. With the aid of that heritage, the victims of, victims of imperialism will in inevitably achieve emancipation from that international regime whose foundations have been rooted for ages in slavery, wars, and injustice. Does it remind you of Lenin's imperialism? With this object, I have instructed the party to be in touch with you. I firmly believe in the continuance of the sport which you have hitherto accorded to my country. Taking my leave of you, dear comrades, I want to express the hope that the day will soon come when the USSR will become a friend and an ally in a, in a mighty free China and that our two united countries will march hand in hand in the great struggle for the emancipation of the oppressed peoples of the world. So that, that is the kind of person Sun Yat-sen was and that was the kind of policy that under his leadership the Comintern followed. And of, of course Sunitsen died in 1925. And after that, Comintang was led by Chiang Kai-shek. He was the, the chief in the Comintang army. And during this period, the forces of the Comintang and the workers and peasants mobilized by the Communist Party of China launched what is called in 1926 the Northern Expedition to free China of the warlords, and it was extremely successful. I'm afraid in this success lies the seeds of the destruction of the alliance between the communists and the Comintern. This success frightened the imperialists and frightened, of course, the Chinese feudalists. We come to that in a minute because we need to really discuss what was the nature of the Chinese revolution. So they realized that if they carried on like that, there would be no feudal lords and the imperialists would not run, run the roost. So they combined together and on April the 12th, 1927, Chiang Kai-shek launched his first extermination campaign against the Communist Party. Thousands and thousands of communists were massacred by Chiang Kai-shek's forces in, in that, forcing the Chinese to out of the cities and establish a base in the mountains of Jingangan. And what Chiang Kai-shek had done, as you can see from the contents of that letter, was not only a betrayal of their alliance with the Chinese Communist Party, but betrayal of all that the founder of that party, Sun Yat-sen, st stood for. From that time onward, Chiang Kai-shek became simply an agent and a tool of imperialism, and of course of the of the feudal ruling ruling classes in in China. Thank you, Paul. Caleb. Well, um, you know it's interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot again, a lot in that as well. Um, the the KMT was not a Marxist party, was not a socialist party. There was kind of a vague, you know, I mean, I guess the three major principles were like independence, democracy, and the people's livelihood. And that third one, the people's livelihood, vaguely was understood to mean some kind of socialism or improvement in people's conditions. I've heard people say that Henry George, uh, the, the economist who was kind of a social democrat in the United States, was an influence on Sun Yat-sen. But the point was that it was a national democratic movement to liberate China from the imperialists. Um, 
and you know that fits with you know the fact that the Bolsheviks supported uh, the Emir of Afghanistan and his fight against the British, and that that I believe it was the Congress of the People's East was convened by the Bolsheviks after the Russian Revolution, where they wanted to support anybody who was fighting the imperialists, and there was a a feeling that the the newly formed Soviet Union was the ally of anyone fighting against the domination of the world by Western imperialism. Um, and that Dr. Sun Yat-sen was very friendly and liked the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, I believe he attended gatherings of the Communist International. He was not a member, but he was an observer and he attended the, the Congresses, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what I think is also uh, worth pointing out is that, you know, Mao Zedong, who became the face of the Chinese Revolution, um, he was the leader of a, of a group called the New People's, it's translated as the New People's Study Society or the New People's Study Group. Um, and at the time, you know, they merged into what became the Chinese Communist Party in 1921. Um, they had come out of, they had been followers of Peter Kropotkin, uh, the anarchist, um, and they'd come out of that trend. And my understanding was that that was because they viewed China as largely a peasant country. And so the idea of, you know, the, the proletariat fighting the bourgeoisie, the factory worker versus the factory owner, uh, that wasn't very popular in China because it was a largely agrarian society. But Kropotkin's writings about the peasantry and their fight against feudalism and his kind of utopian anarchist schemes for the countryside were widely studied because China was a largely agrarian country. Um, but it was because of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 that Marxism became popular. And um, there's a, a film that was produced in China about a decade ago that, that, you know, you can watch the founding of a party, or I think it's sometimes called the beginning of the Great Revival. Um, and one of the lines throughout the film, it shows Mao, it's about the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. It was created in, in China. They frequently ask Mao, you know, why are you following Bolshevism? Isn't this a Russian idea? And throughout the movie, he says, well, no, Bolshevik just means majority. And the workers and peasants of China are the majority of the population. They, they repeat that line throughout the movie. And it kind of makes the point that, that, you know, there was a feeling that Marxism did not apply to China because China had not developed a fully capitalist economy. Um, and uh, so I think that that's interesting to point out as well. Um, and that, that one of the main ways the Soviet Union came to the aid of China was military. I mean, this northern expedition was the fact that the Soviet Union, I believe, uh, I believe uh, it was uh, Borodin uh, was his name, I believe was, was kind of the, the, you know, the Soviet Union's uh, figure that they, they dispatched to China to kind of manage their relations, and that military training was provided to, to the Chinese Republic to carry out the Northern Expedition, to fight the warlords, etc. And through setting up military training, providing military training, military academies, uh, that was one of the ways that the Soviet Union was able to aid the Chinese Republic um, and kind of solidify the relationship that flourished under Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Thanks, Caleb. So, Harpal, you talked earlier about how um, from up until 1927, the communists had joined with the Kuomintang in, in a kind of united uh, national democratic project, uh, but the success of the Northern Expedition ironically led... Um, Chiang Kai-shek to turn against his communist allies and to become transformed really into a tool of imperialism and, and of the feudal uh, class in China. Um, so who then was responsible for maintaining the democratic revolution after 1927? Well, obviously the major force was the Communist Party of China. But what happened is that after Chiang Kai-shek had betrayed, these were called the right wing in the Kuomintang party. There was for a very short period of time, the left wing of the Communist Party, which established its headquarter in the city of Wuhan. Do you mean left wing of the Kuomintang? Yeah, left wing of the Kuomintang established itself as a government in Wuhan. And so the Communist Party of China allied with the Wuhan government because after Chiang Kai-shek had betrayed Wuhan, became the revolutionary center for the democratic forces. So the communists allied with, with that until such time as Wuhan deserted as well. But of course, there was a lot of criticism made of these alliances by Trotsky and subsequently by, by, by Zinoviev. And it obviously the criticism is entirely unfounded because there were tremendous gains that the Communist Party made during this period. In the period which is known as the all-national united front period, um, that is when there is no betrayal yet by, by Chiang Kai-shek, 
that is before 12th of April 1927, the Chinese Communist Party gained number of things from number of small groups. It formed itself into a party of five or six thousand people. Secondly, it got the chance to openly propagate its ideas among working people. It organized trade unions. It established peasants associations, and of course, it got also the chance to work in the army, which is extremely extremely important. But once the Comintern, both right and left, had betrayed, Mao Zedong learned two lessons from that betrayal, and from the slaughter of communists and workers and peasants. One was that without a people's army, the people have nothing. The Communist Party must also have its own army to defend and fight for the rights of the workers and peasants. And secondly. That political power grows from the barrel of a gun. That's a very famous maxim of Marx, of Engels, and sorry, of Mao Zedong. And he's often described by the bourgeois as a bloodthirsty tyrant because he said political power grows from the barrel of a gun. That is true even in the most peaceful democratic republic. The final bastion of political power of the bourgeoisie is really the gun. They don't use it all the time. They use it whenever it's necessary, but in the final analysis, if the bourgeoisie cannot maintain its power through parliamentarism, through the so-called democratic methods, it will use force wherever it can. Even minor disturbances call forth tremendous amount of repression. You can see in Western countries. You can see what was happening in France during the months of Gilets Jaunes uh, movement. You can see in the United States of America, and you can see in Britain how the workers are pounced upon by the armed forces and, and 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 the police, and so as a result of that, having been expelled from there, the Communist Party established base in Jinggan, and few months later, on the first of August, nineteen twenty-seven, it founded the People's Liberation. Liberation Army, and the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, sorry, Communist Party of China, the People's Liberation Army of China, and the liberation of China are inextricably linked with each other. They cannot be separated in in any way, and that's 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 what they um they 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 did, and so the communists became from that time onwards. The leaders of the liberation movement, because the Communist Party has the same analysis of the Chinese Revolution as was put forward by the Comintern and by jo jo Joseph Stalin, namely that the Chinese Revolution, its content was anti-feudal and anti-imperialist. Anti-feudal because China was at that time mainly an agrarian country; ninety percent of its people lived in the countryside. And they were extremely oppressed and horribly exploited by the feudal landlords and 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 gentry. And in this exploitation, they had the backing of imperialism. It was noted long while ago. It's it's one of the most disgusting things about imperialism, is that in the interest of its financial uh, giants, it is able to make. Deals. It's able to enter into agreements with the most reactionary powers all over the world. We only have to see around ourselves the relationship between imperialism and Saudi Arabia, and the relationship between American imperialism and a number of uh, Latin American countries. In all these places, imperialism does not give a damn about the liberation of the people. You know, these countries have made their bourgeois revolutions long while ago. Uh, Americans didn't have to fight fight against feudal lords, but they fought against British colonialism. But in Europe, revolutions took place against feudalism, and the best example of that, of course, is the Great French Revolution of the of the eighteenth century. But since having come to power, and since having transformed themselves from just being capitalist to imperialist powers, they become the oppressors of the world, and they they 
enter into compromises and deals with the most reactionary forces in the countries they exploit so as to carry on with, 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 with their exploitation. So the Chinese Communist Party was the only force there that could lead the, lead the liberation struggle of the, of, of the Chinese people. And of course, they could not be tolerated because they were going strong in Jinggang. And so Chiang Kai-shek launched his second extermination campaign in 1934, forcing the Communist Party and the People's Liberation of China, of, uh, of Liberation Army of China to vacate their bases in Jinggangan and actually start the legendary Long March, which would take all the way 6,000 miles to a place called Yanan, where they established their, their base. So Yanan became not only eventually a base of revolution, a revolutionary base, but also a base for the liberation of whole of China fighting against foreign imperialists, particularly Jap Japanese imperialists. So that's what happened. Thanks, Sopal. Before I come to Caleb, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to just um, highlight a couple of the things that have come up in the conversation that really struck me. One of them is, uh, I think both of you pointed to it at different times, this idea that uh, was very prevalent uh, in the early days of um, kind of Marxism and, and the growth of the working class movement, which is that Marxism only applies in an advanced industrial country. It can't be applied, it can't be useful to a peasant country or a country that has a majority peasant population. Um, but of course, Marxism isn't a dogma. Marxism isn't a set of, it's not a, it's not a kind of program of this is uh, the, the steps for your revolution. It is a method, it's a way of understanding the world, it's a method to be applied. And it is, in fact, the highest achievement of human science to date, and therefore is applicable to everything and everyone everywhere if you're able to understand it and work out how you apply it to your concrete situation. And of course, the genius of the people who have led revolutionary movements in the 20th century is that they did exactly that. And actually, if you have a look, almost every single one of them was in a country that had a predominantly peasant population and which as a result had been told, your people are too backward, too poor, too stupid, too uneducated, um, and your economy is not advanced enough, you will never make a revolution in your country. They did it nevertheless with the power of Marxism. So, you know, the, all the revolutions of the 20th century, every one of them is a living reputation of this idea that there are places where Marxism can be used and places where it can't be used. Um, you talked um, a little bit, both of you, about this uh, question of, uh, of violence and, and the need for the people to... The, the, the Communist Party to be ready to defend itself and to defend the people. Um, and of course, this is something that the ruling class really wants to hide from us. You know, the, the whole secret, and Hapal, you said that there, of their power is that the ruling class, the minority ruling class, it exercises a monopoly over violence. So it doesn't have to come out on the streets every day with guns because it knows perfectly well that people are disarmed in general and they have the monopoly on the use of force. They can bring it out as and when they want to. They have forces of force violence at their command all the time, on standby, trained, ready to go whenever they're needed. Um, and so this understanding by the revolutionaries that when you're building a meaningful movement, if you want to, to protect its gains and keep advancing, you are going to have to prepare yourselves militarily to face the violence of the forces against you. You know, Ma Mao Zedong wasn't bloodthirsty in the sense that he decided on day one, we better start arming. I mean, he's, he was responding to a phenomenal massacre of communists from which they weren't expected to recover because it was so huge. Now, at that point, do you give up and go home or do you say, no, we do still want this revolution, in which case we must recognize the truth, which is we are going to face bloody and brutal opposition. And the only way we'll be able to defend ourselves is to answer force with force with the like. And as Paul said, it was that understanding and the founding of the People's Liberation Army that enabled the liberation struggle to be prosecuted. So that's a really important lesson for us, isn't it? It's not that we go out looking for violence. It's that you know, we have to recognize when violence is afflicted on us. Well, if we still believe in our cause, we're going to have to be able to fight back. Um, and I just wondered very briefly if anyone had any um, thoughts on almost how it was possible for the communists to recover 
from that mass extermination campaign in 1927. Do you have any more information, Hopal, about what they did? Because the numbers involved were, you know, were massive. Well, really, their, their, their recruitment came through the fact that the Chiang Kai-shek regime was so brutal to the ordinary population that the communist uh, ideas and their propaganda resonated with the majority of the population. Wherever the, uh, the People's Liberation Army went, the way it treated the people, when it came to actually establish bases, uh, it distributed land to the peasantry, which was, of course, something extremely important to the peasants. It would take uh, crops from the rich landlords and gentry and distribute among the poor. And the People's Liberation Army had rules that never ever take even a needle from a peasant without paying, paying, paying for it. You are not there as oppressors and, and looters. You must look out after the people. And if you use a, a peasant's uh, piece of wood as a board for sleeping on, you must restore it and return it in the condition it, it was. If you use this straw for matting, you must return that 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 straw, and you must speak to people politely. There were rules. I mean, to you and me may may sound funny. You are not to bathe naked in front of females. I mean, in Europe, of course, it's regarded as the epitome of epitome of high culture that you go around bathing, bathing naked. You know, but China is is the society. It was the society that it was. And you are to actually respect uh, the sensitivity of, of, of the of the females. You are to free people from ancient superstitions and, and, and customs. You know, women must be freed from having their feet bound. Uh, wherever they went, they propagated against opium, opium addiction. So they were not just fighters with weapons. They were also propagandists for the ideology of, of, of the people's, people's liberation, for the ideology which was spread by the Communist Party of China. And that is really what turned the Communist Party of China into the formidable force that it became as the leader of the liberation, liberation movement. And then, of course, uh, is, is, is the question of fighting against foreign aggression. When the Japanese started invading China in 1931, Chiang Kai-shek was not so much interested in fighting against the Japanese as in his campaigns of extermination against, against the communists. And the communists' viewpoint, notwithstanding the fact that they were targets of his extermination campaign, was to have a joint agreement and an alliance with the KMT so together they could fight against foreign aggression, because there can be no question of democratic revolution, let alone socialist revolution, if China is occupied by a foreign power. So the most important thing was to get rid of foreign aggression and foreign occupation. And the Chinese were the lead leaders of that, how they came to actually force Chiang Kai-shek to enter into this, this alliance again in, in, in 1937. Is significant, and we come to that. Caleb. Well, sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot there. Again, we're we're kind of going over big swaths of, of time, but um, you know, I mean, the Chinese Soviet Republic was established, right? So that was, you know, when when you had the brutal, you know, crackdown, the White Terror, where hundreds of thousands of communists were being slaughtered in Chinese cities. Um, you know, uh, you had the Communist Party fleeing to the countryside because that's where they could be safe in the cities. If they were caught, they would be killed. And I guess there were a couple very heroic uprisings, I believe Shanghai and Canton. You had a brief seizure of power where the communists took power in these cities in response to Chiang Kai-shek's brutal massacres, but they were unable to hold on to power and they retreated into the countryside. Mm -hmm. um, and they began building a, a revolutionary movement in the countryside among the peasantry. And the attack was, well, peasantry, and this was, you know, from the Trotskyites and others, that the peasantry, they are not proletarians. They aspire to own their own land. They aspire to become petty bourgeois. So they, they, they can't be the base of a revolution. 
And uh, the Chinese Communist Party says, well, no, maybe it is a peasant revolution, but it's being carried out under the leadership of proletarian ideology. It's the working class ideology that's leading the Chinese Communist Party. And and that, you know, we will liberate the peasants, we will enable them to get their own land, but we'll be doing it on the basis of a proletarian ideology. And I think that's also very important to point out. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, when you talked about how was it that the Red Army uh, was able to to have such successes in the face of, of the massive slaughter and white terror from the, you know, the KMT, and how was it then after they established, you know, this, this Chinese Soviet Republic in this base area, that then was very brutally crushed, and then Mao retreated into the mountains with a long march. Uh, how was it that they were able to regenerate their forces? Um, and and I, I guess you know I just want to reemphasize the points that Harpal made is that that for centuries the the military and the armies that would come to these villages were known to just plunder and rape uh, and rape and raid the people. And if the people saw an army coming. They panicked because they thought they're going to come here and they're going to steal all of our supplies. They're going to brutalize and terrorize us. And when the Red Army showed up, they did the opposite. Uh, they paid for every single item that they took. They helped the people to grow their crops. Uh, they, I, when the Red Army arrived, it was the opposite of what armies had done when they arrived in these rural villages for thousands of years. And so it was such a, such a change. Um, and that, you know, I mean, you can read the, I believe it's the, what is it, the, it's in the little red book, the, uh, what is it, the eight rules of discipline and the four points of attention, or I, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's still used by the Chinese military up to today. And it's like one of the military marches is it was put to, the, the, the words to it were put to music. But it, it's a very strict thing that, you know, pay for everything that you take. Do not take liber liberties with women, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, carry out every policy. It's very, very to the point, And it was enforced very brutally. Uh, with discipline. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if, if someone, you know, if you had somebody who went into a village and stole something or something, they might execute them. Um, because there was such an entrenched, uh, there was such an entrenched, entrenched tradition of corruption uh, in Chinese culture from the centuries of humiliation that in order to make sure that the Red Army was something completely different, they had to very strictly enforce these policies. But doing so made the Red Army and the People's Liberation Army something that was of a different character, uh, that was able to carry out a revolution that, that, that was very different than anything that had gone on before. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that, that Mao really deserves credit for, is that, that he created a military and a fighting force that was of a completely different character. Um, and a lot of that was just rejecting corruption, just having a very firm policy of, of not allowing any corruption of any kind, not allowing the people to be plundered. Um, and that laid the basis for building kind of a new kind of army and that the People's Liberation Army always made clear it was a political army. Unlike, unlike the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie maintains, you know, the capitalist state, there's no politics, right? We're just carrying out enforcing the law. Well, the People's Liberation Army makes no bones about the fact we are a communist army. We're engaging in political education. Um, you know, the military, they were given, in addition to their military training, they were being taught communist and Marxist-Leninist ideology. Uh, and there was a feeling that that every soldier should understand what the Communist Party is fighting for, its goals, etc. There were elements of democracy in the army where where some decisions were being made, you know, collectively, and 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 it wasn't completely, you know, completely just you know follow orders from above. There was kind of a, a an effort to politicize the soldiers and involve them in the, the policy making, etc. Um, the, the People's Liberation Army that Mao built was of a very very different character. Um, and that enabled the Chinese Communist Party to ultimately end up, you know, very effectively fighting Japan in this alliance and eventually taking power. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah. I mean, um, Hapal, before we move on uh, to the United Front with the Kuomintang, did you want to talk any more about the, the differences in the, in the Comintern regarding the attitude that should be taken towards revolution in China? You, you sort of glanced at it a little bit. I didn't know if you wanted to say more on that. Yes, I do. Um, well, they, when the alliance was formed, Trotsky from the very beginning said there should be no alliance with, 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 with the Comintern. You know, but for Trotsky, following from his notorious theory, which is the cause of his eventual downfall and desertion to the camp of literary fascism, if you, if you like, is the theory of permanent revolution, so-called permanent re revolution. He sees the proletariat 
He sees the bourgeoisie, but somehow manages not to look at the peasantry. This was the same in Russia. China was by no means the first country with, with, with a majority peasant population. Russia at the time of the revolution, 80% of its people were peasants and they lived in the villages and earned their living through work, working, working, working on, the, on, on the land. So you cannot make a revolution without the people. And if the people have to be peasants, somehow you've got to work a program that will enlist the peasantry for the revolution. Lenin was able to work out and therefore first for the democratic revolution and then for the so socialist revolution. Likewise in China, you had to work out a program that will bring the peasantry in, into it. And Trotsky didn't want to ha ha have, but of course he was wrong, he was overruled, and there were tremendous gains, as I briefly hinted earlier, during, during the alliance with the, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the uh, Comintang. In the first period of the National United Front, the Communist Party became a party of five or six thousand people from scattered number of small, small groups. It got the chance to work in the army, it got the chance to propagate freely, it got the chance to organize trade unions and peasant associations. And during the brief Wuhan period, alliance with the Wuhan left wing Kuomintang, Chinese Communist Party became a formidable force of 50 or 60,000. You know, from 5,000, it went to 50 or 60,000. 60, 60, and it was able to actually, from being just an adjunct to, 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 to the Kuomintang, became literally from then on, words, the hegemon of the Chinese, Chinese Revolution. Even when there were periods of repression and periods of extermination, at the end of it, even the much reduced Communist Party continued to be the only organization that represented the interests of the majority, not only of the proletarians in the cities, but also of the peasantry in the vast territory of, of China. The Chinese people were the people's army. It wasn't an army that came from outside to tell them what to do. It was recruited from the people and it worked among the people. It propagated the ideas of democracy and socialism among the people. And it lived by the principles that actually ordinary peasants could see what they were and come, come, come to their sport. So that the, and during the Wuhan period, Trotsky described Wuhan as a fiction. And Zinoviev, by this time, had already forgotten his Leninism, forgotten all the resolutions of the Comintern during the time when he was the chairman of the Comintern and the resolutions for which he had himself voted. He forgot about them and started saying that the Chinese revolution, the character of it was, it was a Kemalist uh, re uh, revolution. A Kemalist revolution is a revolution organized by the top sections of the merchant bourgeoisie. It is not something that fights for the liberation of the peasantry or of the working class. And Trotsky's position was, it's a fiction. And Zenobia's position, it's Kamalist. They did not believe it's a anti-feudal, anti-imperialist revolution. If it was anti-imperialist, it was only in their view as Trotsky said, because the Chinese merchant bourgeoisie is fighting for customs independence, because the customs of the various treaty ports were, were controlled by foreign countries, principally Britain, France, America, and, and, and minor imperialist country, countries as well, and, and, and Germany came late, late in the scene. It was for customs autonomy. Well, but as Stalin said, They've heard that there is a democratic revolution going on. Where it comes from, only, only God, God knows. The whole idea of a democratic revolution is that it's a re revolution which is actually conducted by the peasantry against, against feudalism. And Stalin said, on the one hand, these people de describe 
the Wuhan Comintern as a fiction or as a Kamalist party. On the other hand, they're asking us to give the utmost support to the Wuhan Comintern. He said, try to make sense of it if you can. If it's a fiction, if it's only a Kamalist organization, when have the communists ever decided to support fictions and Kamalist, Kamalist organizations? He said, these people are not revolutionaries. They're more like revolutionary tourists who happen to be around the city and they've heard that the Comintern was holding its sessions, the executive committee. And having heard, read the thesis of the Comintern, they decided to write a number of their own theses and bombarded the Comintern with their erroneous thesis, thinking that large number of a plethora of theses would be substitute for an act, actual policy on, on, the, on the Chinese revolution. And they were obviously in a minority in the Comintern, they were defeated. But trouble arose every time there was a defeat. They always attributed the defeat to the Comintern's policy. And of course, principally, the great devil, Stalin himself. Every time there's a defeat, they would blame the, the Comintern. Stalin said only people who are bereft of all sense of decency can attribute a failure of a revolution at a given time to the wrong policy. He said wrong policy, of course, will never achieve victory. But the correct policy does not always achieve victory because victory depends not only on the correctness of the policy pursued by a political party, but also on the balance of forces. If the balance of forces are tipped against, against the revolutionary force, it would lose, it will not, will not win. So instead of attributing the weaknesses to the preponderance force on the side of counter-revolution, it's no point blaming the Communist Party of China and the Comintern by extension of pursuing a wrong, wrong policy. It had nothing to do with policy. It was the balance of forces that was against the communists at that time. So these, these were the differences. Every time there's trouble, they, even they desert even their earlier stance, their earlier positions, and start clamoring that there's a defeat because the Comintern is the author of those, those, those defeats. There's a common thread, isn't there? Thanks, Rapal, with the, like throughout the history of the 20th century, uh, every single uh, battle that doesn't go the way the Trotskyists think it should have gone uh, is definitely Stalin's fault. And we have that from China to the Spanish Civil War to the Second World War to, you know, almost everywhere, Greece, it, you know, anything is Stalin's fault that they don't like how it's going or how it's turned out.